You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Uh, if you'll take a look, with that being said, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, this is a weird passage, I'm just going to let you know. Uh, it gets a little quirky at points along the way. took me twice the amount of coffee this week to dive into commentaries, but it is a lot of fun, as you will see uh, momentarily. Um, let's read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, we'll work our way through the passage and we'll pray and we'll get to work. It says this, Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come, uh, that you would do great things in the hearts of all of us in this room. Uh, This is a rather challenging passage, one that many of us would like to just glance over and move on to the next chapter, wondering what in the world does this have to do with us, and yet there are great things to be gleaned uh, at a mind and heart level for all of us in this room, uh, whether we be Christians or not. And so I pray that uh, you would save many, pray that you would plant flags of dominion in the lives of those who profess to know and love and follow you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in most of your Bibles, there's uh, a big, bold font subtitle that sits above these 13 verses. Uh, For some of you, it just simply says sexual immorality. For others of you, it says sexual immorality defiles the church. And I think that's a terrible subtitle. So we're going to retitle this. And and there's not a problem with that because the subtitles themselves are not inerrant. Okay, When when the Bible's original manuscripts were created, there were no chapter designations or verse designations or bold font subtitles, so it's okay for us to, to disagree with the subtitles from time to time. So in this chapter, I'm going to argue that the sexuality piece, the sexuality issue, just happens to be the one that causes Paul to address the more predominant theme, which is that of church discipline. 
So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's why we see Paul include matters of other sins in his listing in this particular chapter of the Bible, not just sexual sin. Paul's going to spend a great deal of time in chapter 6 and 7 on sexuality. So if you're curious about that, about what God thinks about issues of sexuality, come back in the next few weeks and we'll talk about that a great deal. But this morning's passage is ultimately focused on the idea of church discipline. So we could go with any of the following subtitles in articulating the big idea of chapter 5. We could say, dealing with unrepentant so-called Christians, that might be a good subtitle, or the grace of God in handing someone over to Satan, or what I've chosen to go with as the title of this sermon, Satan as a means of salvation. And now everyone's listening in. You just woke up, right? The coffee just kicked in. What is he talking about? And so I'll unpack what I mean by that in just a moment. But I want to ask a question first. When you hear the language of church discipline, what comes to mind for you? Based on your experience in the church, however old you are, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of church discipline? Is it maybe becoming a better version of you in your own strength? Maybe you've heard you're failing at this whole sanctification thing, so just try harder. I've used the language before. Pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps, if you will. Um, Maybe for some of you, it's being chastised for not abiding by legalistic man-made rules that don't even appear in the scriptures. So so maybe you've heard, you know, good Christians read their Bible 30 minutes a day, and I noticed that you're falling a little bit short of that, and so maybe you should step up your game. Or I noticed that you're hanging out with a rough crowd, and that seems to be damaging your reputation a bit, so maybe you should clean up the crowd that you actually hang out with, and we'll talk about that even more in the moments to come. Or maybe nothing comes to mind because you've never been a part of a church that practiced church discipline. Maybe that's just completely off the radar for you. Maybe you've heard the language of we don't want to offend or we're all about the grace of God around here and the lavish grace of God seems to be irreconcilable with this idea of church discipline. So we're not going to engage in that as a church at all. So I would argue that the church in recent history has dropped the ball terribly on this idea of church discipline, be it through legalistic wrist slapping on the one hand or uh, fear-driven timidity on the other. And so we want to engage these things. I want to attempt to lay a, a little bit of groundwork for us when we even use this language of church discipline. What are we talking about? Many of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, John Knox, believed that uh, there were three pillars that defined a church that made you a church by definition. Number one, the preaching of the word. So you're not a church if you don't open the Bible and expound that. There's not a proclamation of the truth of God's word. You're not a church. Number two, the administration of the sacrament. So if there is no baptism taking place, if there's no administration of communion, you're not a church. And then thirdly, the third pillar is this idea of church discipline. And so let me unpack what I, what I mean by that. I attempted to articulate a definition of church discipline. It took me a couple of cups of coffee to get through this one, but I want to share this one with you. This is my best effort at a definition of church discipline. Church discipline is the humble, courageous act of doing whatever it takes to restore an unrepentant so-called brother or sister in Christ to God and the church in love. Let me say that again. Church discipline is the humble, courageous act of doing whatever it takes to restore an unrepentant so-called brother or sister in Christ to God and the church in love. So let me unpack just a few things here. One, church discipline is not a thought or a feeling. It's an act. It's not passive, it's not passive-aggressive. It's a bold, courageous action. Number two, it's a whatever-it-takes kind of action. 
In this case, Paul's language is it's delivering the unrepentant person over to Satan. And again, I'll explain what Paul means by that momentarily. Number three, it's reserved for unrepentant so-called brothers or sisters in Christ. This is not for the person who doesn't know or love or follow Jesus. It's for those who say, I'm a Christian, whether they are or not, when repentance is rejected. Number four, its ultimate purpose is to restore a person to God and the church. That's the ultimate goal is restoration, not rejection. And then under that goal are additional purposes or goals, which is to keep sin from spreading throughout the local church, which we'll see Paul talk about in the language of leavened and unleavened bread. And then secondly, it's to authenticate the corporate witness of the church. And so perhaps you've heard people say, I don't want to be a part of the church because all I see is great hypocrisy when I look in on the church. And on the one hand, there's some truth to that, um, right? there's, There's a sense in which some people look in and what they really expect is perfection, not repentance. And so the idea of hypocrisy uh, is unfounded. That's not the reality of what Jesus calls us to. Um, He's calling us to a walking in repentance and humility so that more flags of dominion are planted for his glory. When people look in and they say, I see hypocrisy, what they really mean is I see imperfection, and I'm using that as an excuse not to engage in the local church. But there is this reality as well where um, there is true hypocrisy that exists, and especially in this Bible Belt subculture that we live in, where there are just as many cultural Christians as true Christians, just as many nominal Christians, Christians in name only, as there are true Christians. And so Paul wants to address this and say, there's a reason behind what I'm bringing up here in chapter five of this letter to you, the church in Corinth, because there's a deep need to authenticate the corporate witness of the church. And then lastly, it's an act of love. It's not a four-letter word, church discipline. It's an instrument of God's grace. The danger is that we would react, especially in in our context, to all the hellfire and brimstone that, that surrounds us and respond in such a way that we view church discipline as an enemy rather than a gracious friend. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a look at a case study of church discipline. That's what chapter five is. I want us to take a look at this. And as we do, we've got to keep in mind Paul's language going back to chapter three, this language of infancy in Christ and a growing and maturing as a Christian, and what that means is that sanctification is a slow, grueling process at times. It means that as Jesus plants flags of dominion in your life for his glory and your joy, sometimes it's very, very slow, right? You know this, many of you. It's not an overnight process. Going back to the story of the guy that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, the homeless guy who punched a dude in the face a couple weeks before I met him, and who I was told three years ago would have taken a baseball bat or a hammer to that same guy's face, that sanctification actually happened, even though me looking in on the situation didn't see that to be true. It was a slow process for this particular man that that I met in inner city Atlanta. We're not looking for perfection, but rather repentance. And so this idea of church discipline, the catalyst for it is not imperfection, but rather unrepentance in the life of God's people So let's take a look at at the passage itself, okay? Verse one, you get the occasion. Check this out. Verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay, the situation at hand, a man is having sex with either his mother or his stepmother. 
I'm inclined to believe it's his stepmother, not just because mom would be even grosser, but because according to Leviticus 18, there's a distinguishing difference between the language of mother and father's wife. Those are two different things in the book of Leviticus. So it's likely that we're talking about the man's stepmom. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it any better. We don't know what the story is here. Maybe the guy's mom died and and dad remarried. Maybe dad's passed away. We don't really know what's going on, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that, that there is an active involvement in a sexually promiscuous relationship here. It's active. It's ongoing, which is why you see the language of there is sexual immorality among you. Not there was. It's not past tense. It's why you see the language of a man has his father's wife, not had. This is ongoing. This is happening right now as Paul is addressing this issue in this church. To be crystal clear is a little bit of a side note. Um, Sexual immorality does not come up in the Bible often because it's the big E on the eye chart of sin. That's not the reason that you see it in practically every list of of sins that, that get laundered out in Paul's letters. The reason you see it often is because the apostles are pressing into Gentile cultures that have a very lax view of sexuality so that uh, this is a particular phrase that would have been used in the Gentile culture that the church of Corinth was looking to press into. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That was a world that the church of Corinth was surrounded by. So that seeing people redeemed in this Greco-Roman subculture with lax views on sexuality would have been quite challenging. To bring them into the biblical Judeo-Christian view of sexuality and how God views sexuality, it would have been a, a challenging flag of dominion to plant in that culture. We live in a similar reality, do we not? We live in a world that has lax views on sexuality, and so the church should address matters of sexuality often. But to quote one commentator, not because sexual immorality is the scarlet letter, not because uh, we, we view it as the big E on the eye chart, the sin that trumps all other sins, but because we, like the people of Corinth, live in a world uh, that re- reacts with great hostility to the biblical imperatives that God lays out in terms of human sexuality. And so we'll get to that again in a couple of chapters, chapter six and seven to be specific. But for now, notice that in this Greco-Roman subculture that has very lax views on issues regarding human sexuality, that even the pagans are appalled by this man's sin. Even the pagans on the outside looking into the church are appalled by this man's sin. You know you're at a whole nother level when the unchurched and the dechurched are appalled at the sin in your life. So let me ask this question. It's the obvious question of the morning. Are there areas of your life that a pagan would define as morally intolerable? It's a great question. Or another way we could ask it is this. If a non-Christian looked at your life, would they see moral hypocrisy? Not, not just a... a Uh, an excuse not to engage the church, but real moral hypocrisy in your life. Or another way we could ask is this, is your life one that honors or dishonors King Jesus before the watching world? Remember, we talked about how um, the Holy Spirit, like a Sherman tank, has plowed through the walls of your kingdom, has executed you, and Jesus now sits on the throne if you're a Christian. Do you live a life in that kingdom now that honors the king that sits on the throne or that dishonors him? This guy's clearly living in an open, unrepentant, Sexual relationship that's causing unbelievers to view the church with great disdain. 
Remember I said that restoring the unrepentant person to God and the church is the ultimate reason for church discipline. But another reason is to authenticate the corporate witness of the church. This guy's bringing disgrace to the name of Jesus in the church of Corinth, the church that Jesus bled out and died for. And Paul's saying it's time to draw a line in the sand so that the watching world will know who you are, whose you are, and what you believe. And so we look at this as a case study moving on into verse 2. Paul says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let who, him who has done this be removed from among you. That, that arrogance is keeping the church from uh, practicing or exercising church discipline. That's the exact opposite of why it's absent from the church today in our subculture. Think about it. It's not pride that keeps us from practicing church discipline uh, in our particular culture. It's either humility or fear. So humility, on the one hand, says, who are, who are we to judge? Who are we to make that, that call for that particular person? And fear says we won't be liked if we do this. Our, our approval idol will be struck if we do this, and so we can't possibly move forward with this particular type of action. Now, for the church in Corinth, it wasn't humility or fear. It was arrogance. This is really weird to me, that, that the Corinthians were arrogant about the fact that one of their people was sleeping with his own kin, right? That's weird. The church should say, huh? Like, what? What is going on here? What would drive a person to go, hey, um, guy in my community group, he's actually sleeping with a stepmom. You should see what God's doing in our church right now. It's quite amazing. What in the world would cause a person to talk like that? I think the answer is found in Romans 6, going back to last week. Remember we talked about the weaving together? of doctrine and conduct, and that a great problem arises when you have doctrine absent of conduct, that one manifestation of that is intellectualism, the person who sits in the theological ivory tower all day reading systematic theology books, whose affections are absent, and, and there's no real hands and feet being put to what they believe. Um, and, and to be clear, to come back around to what I said last week, let me, let me be crystal clear and say, that doesn't mean that we put the brakes on growing with our minds. That actually means we hit the gas pedal with our affections and with our hands and feet so that they play catch up a little bit because we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So intellectualism is, is one great problem where you see doctrine absent of conduct, but the other is licentiousness. We talked about this last week, this idea of living without bounds, without limits. This is what Paul addresses in Romans 6. Remember, we talked about last week that verse, our chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Romans is Paul laying out the depravity of mankind and then unpacking the lavish, overwhelming grace of God that can cover any sin. And he does so in such a way that by the time he gets to chapter 6, he says, I've been talking about the lavish grace of God so much that I probably should cut something off at the past before you even ask it, which is this. Wait, does that mean that because God's grace is so lavish that we can sin all we want to and that the grace of God will abound if we do? That's what's going on in Corinth. They're saying, hey, we have sins that are so horrific that the abounding grace of God is just that much more evident in our midst. Paul says in Romans 6, by no means, that those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus now don't step on it or abuse it on their way toward their own glory and arrogance. That the truth of the gospel actually compels our obedience, not our abuse of the king who died for us. The church of Corinth is beating their chest in pride over sin because the grace of God is, is seen as that much greater 
And according to Paul, it should cause the church not to beat her chest in arrogance, but rather to mourn. And I find this interesting. This word mourn in verse 2 actually means to confess the sin as if it were your own. Now, this, this is Greek to us in our culture. We live in an individualistic, consumeristic subculture that, that says uh, whenever you see a grievous sin, uh, you should be inclined to use that and make it an occasion for gossip or to use that as an opportunity to play the comparison game to make yourself feel better about your own sin and unbelief. But Paul's saying when the church functions as God intended, she really is a family. And when a family member gets caught up in something horrific, we mourn. Those of you who are old enough to have kids who, are, who you see the great sin in their lives. Mine's 10 months old. I'm just starting to see her depravity. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, though, when I talk about mourning the sin of those who you share flesh and blood with. It breaks your heart. We mourn for two reasons. One, because we want something better for that person's life than what they're experiencing. And number two, reputation by association. It makes the whole family just look horrifically bad. And so it breaks our hearts. This reputation by association idea is the reason that Paul is rebuking, one, the sexually immoral man on the one hand, but two, the entire church on the other. That everyone in the church is receiving a rebuke here. That the church is responsible for the publicly known sinfulness of its members, you might say. That's crazy. You ever thought about that? If you see unrepentant sin in the church and do nothing about it, you're guilty by implication, according to this text. That's quite amazing. A guy by the name of, I think, Preben Vong, he's a theologian and commentator. Just the fact that I can't pronounce his name must mean that it's really impressive. He says this. He says, where sin can live unhindered, the church remains a social gathering and has not become a community empowered and sanctified by Christ. Okay, here's a vision-casting moment. I don't want to be a part of a country club in Peachtree City. I don't. I want to be a part of a community empowered and sanctified by Jesus Christ. Paul says, <laughs> my approval idol wanted to say it again because he, he asked me to. Paul says it's time to do something, and in this case, Doing something means removing this man from the church, and even more so, as we'll see in verse 5. It's really crazy when we get there. Lick your chops. It's coming. Now, here's the question that begs to be answered for us. Does unrepentant sin necessitate removal from the church in every case? I mean, if we see unrepentant sin surrounding us, we want to respond to that so that we're not guilty by implication, so that the corporate witness of the church is authenticated, so that a little leaven doesn't spread throughout the church, as we'll talk about in just a moment, and, and ruin the entire church. So do we just kick anyone and everyone out of the church? Do we just put whistles in our mouth and just start calling fouls left and right? Is that the church we become? And I think the answer is an emphatic no. Okay, first of all, when it comes to the scriptures, the sins for which church discipline is primarily exercised are those that are publicly committed in such a way that the uh, authentic witness of the church corporately is, is in shambles. It's compromised. And, and so that other believers are tempted to sin. We're not talking about any and, and every sin imaginable. The following list is not exhaustive, but it gives examples of sins requiring church discipline in the Bible, things like this, like divisiveness, okay? Something that can be seen that would cause people looking in to have great problem with the church. Incest, obvious one coming up this morning in the text, even laziness, 
lethargy, um, disobeying the scriptures blatantly, blasphemy, and false teaching. Okay, so we're not talking about every sin imaginable. Again, Jesus is planting flags of dominion in every one of our lives in this room, mine included. None of us have reached perfection. You say you have, you're a liar and you're a sinner, so you're imperfect. And in fact, oftentimes in God's grace, all it takes is a one-on-one conversation with a brother or sister in Christ to bring about repentance. It really can be that simple. According to Matthew 18, that's a really good starting point, right? And if you encounter unrepentant sin in the church, a one-on-one conversation can go a long way. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't bring about repentance, then a good idea is to have a conversation at a community group level. And if you still see unrepentance, just a blatant rejection of a repentant, humble Uh, response and lifestyle to that engagement, you invite the elders and pastors of the church into that. And as a last resort, the situation can be brought up before the entire church gathered. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I pray to God that we we never get to that point, but we should talk about it because it's in the Bible, right? We don't want to just jump over to the next chapter and uh, just talk about the things that will tickle all of our ears. So in this situation, we're talking about a sin intolerable to pagans, publicly committed in such a way that the corporate witness of the church is compromised. And number two, we're talking about a situation in which this guy has rejected the acknowledgement of his sin at multiple levels. So, so the idea, again, is not that we go around with whistles in our mouths like a bunch of referees blowing fouls on each other. But in this situation, things have escalated, and Paul means business. And he says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. We see this idea of removal three different times in this text. We see it in verse 2, we see it in verse 7, and we see it in verse 13. Look at verse 7, or actually let's step back a verse to verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? Remember going back to chapter 1, he said, you guys have been given the gift of knowledge in all of its fullness. Do you not know? This is a statement about the, the ignorance of the saints in Corinth. Paul's saying your arrogance is your ignorance, and it's destroying the church from the inside out. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in these verses, Paul's arguing that removing this man from the church will keep sin from spreading throughout the church. And he's making that argument by using the language of leaven versus unleavened bread. He's taking us back to the Passover story in the book of Exodus. Some of you guys remember this story even as recently as last spring when we as a church worked through the, the story of the Exodus of the, of the Israelites from Egypt. Right? The, Egypt uh, the Egyptians have have uh, been oppressing the Israelites for quite a long time. And in his providence, God raises up a man by the name of Moses and sends him to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to say, thus says the Lord, let the Israelites go so that they may worship God in freedom. Moses thinks he's a terrible candidate for the position, and he's right, he is. God loves to use incompetent, weak people to, to make known his competency and strength and power. Moses and his brother Aaron end up in a battle of wills with Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. And he essentially says, you want me to let your people stop making bricks, which are being used to build monuments for my glory, so that they can now go off into the wilderness and make much of your God. Not going to happen, guys. You can just take it off the table now. And God, in order to demonstrate his power, brings on a series of plagues 
upon Egypt, 10 to be exact, and the plagues go from, from bad to worse, culminating in the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And so God says to Moses, I'm gonna bring redemption, and here's how it's gonna happen. God says, I want you to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, a sacrifice with no defect in it whatsoever, because God is perfect, and thus he demands a perfect sacrifice. And God says, you're going to kill that lamb without blemish. You're going to smear its blood on on your front door, and you're going to eat the meat. Sounds really crazy, really weird. God says, do those things and do them in haste with your shoes tied, with your belt tightened, and with a sense of urgency ready to go, because this is going to happen really quickly. And God says, the purpose of you slaughtering that lamb and smearing its blood on your doorposts is that the lamb is going to act as a substitute, that judgment is coming on the land and no one is exempt that it's either the blood of your firstborn or the blood of the lamb. And the Israelites do as God commands. And that night, God strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door is not covered by the blood of the unblemished lamb. Paul connects the dots for us in this morning's passage in chapter 7, saying Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of that entire story. That like the Israelites, judgment is coming upon the land and no one is exempt, that we either pay the penalty for our sin or the unblemished lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, pays the penalty for us, a ransom paid in blood. If you look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, it puts it this way. It says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Then in the same way that God knew that the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelite homes uh, meant that he was to pass over them, God sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus, spilled out for you, and he passes over you. That's what we call substitutionary atonement, that we deserve the death penalty, that Jesus died our death, bearing our sin, bearing our punishment, bearing our penalty. He bled and died so that like Israel, we could go free. That's the gospel that the Israelites in the wake of the Exodus were commanded to eat only unleavened bread for the seven days following the Passover, and that was each year as a a remembering, as a commemoration. The question is, why unleavened bread? I think two reasons. Number one, it's a reminder of what actually happened as God freed the Israelites, right? He did it in a blink. He turned the table so quickly that even the dough didn't have time to leaven, and it's a reminder that I can turn the tables in a moment that God is capable of all things. Also significant, secondly, is this. Leaven spreads throughout the dough and has a way of affecting everything that it comes into contact with. That's what Paul's driving at in this morning's passage. He uses leaven as a, as a symbol of evil, of sinful indulgences. In other words, Paul's saying, Jesus bought you with his blood. In light of that truth, it's time to get rid of the corruption within you. Or another way that we might say it in the original context of the Passover story is this. The goal was not simply to get Israel out of Egypt. The goal was also to get Egypt out of Israel. That makes sense? You tracking with me? The goal was not simply to remove the Israelites from the land of foreign gods, but to remove the foreign gods from the hearts of the Israelites. John McKay in his commentary says it this way. He says, unleavened bread 
symbolized the fact that the Lord's deliverance had introduced a decisive break in their lives from the corrupting spiritual influences of Egypt. He goes on to say, the avoidance of yeast celebrated their separation as a people redeemed by the Lord and in covenant with him. It was symbolic of their quitting the land of Egypt spiritually as well as physically. So Paul's making the case this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that like Israel, you and I have been redeemed that Israel was redeemed from enslavement to to Egypt, and you and I, if you're a Christian, we are uh, redeemed from enslavement to sin. That Christ is the true Passover lamb who frees us to live lives of sincerity of truth rather than malice and evil. He frees us to wage war against sin, that Jesus put the key in the shackles of your life, you might say, and has freed you. The handcuffs have been removed. And now the question is, are you gonna live for the king in a way that honors him? not to welcome sin in your life and allow it to permeate the church using Paul's language. If you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14, you don't have to flip there. You can write this one down. Paul puts it this way. He says, Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. There's this purpose behind Jesus ransoming us so that we might be a pure people who are zealous for good. John Piper, in his exposition of this text, puts it this way. This is very convicting. He says, if you reject Christ as a purifier, you do not have him as a pardoner. The evidence that you have Christ as the pardon for your sin is your passion for purity for which he died. That makes sense that the two go hand in hand. It's this idea of Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord or my king. You can't have one without the other. That if he's truly pardoned you, that that there's this passion that he creates within you by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you to live a life that honors the new king in town, the new sheriff, you might say. Paul goes on to say one last time, remove the sinful man from among you in the last few verses of chapter 5. He says, starting in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, Paul goes to great lengths to make very clear that there's a difference between your unbelieving non-Christian friend and the so-called Christian in the church that's living an unrepentant life, that we're called to be a friend of sinners, that we're called to associate with the sexually immoral of this world. Go back to the Gospels, read them this week. You see it tattooed all over the pages of Scripture, that Jesus engaged in an encounter with a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 that Jesus engaged in an encounter with a woman at the well in John chapter 4 who had been married five times and was shacking up with potential husband number six, that we're called to associate with the greedy and the swindlers. Think Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector that Jesus called down from the tree and said, I'm going to come to your house today and we're going to hang out and I'm going to redeem you. Think of the rich young man who refused to sell everything that he had to follow Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Think about Judas, one of the 12 who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, a greedy, swindling thief. 
We're called to associate with idolaters, which is just a junk drawer that means uh, a person who loves anything or anyone more than God. Think the pagans. Think of the pagans who love their own gods in Jesus' day, who worship sex and money and power. And think of the Pharisees who love themselves and their own accolades and merits more than God at the end of the day, truly. Jesus went after all of those people. The holy huddle mentality and attitude is not the way of Jesus, to be very clear this morning. David Pryor, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, the most telling, the most telling index of this attitude, this holy huddle attitude, is the way we fill our diaries with Christian meetings rather than make ourselves available for genuinely meeting unbelievers in open-ended friendship. That's a really good litmus test. What does your calendar look like between now and the time you come back into this place a week from now? Is it filled with a bunch of Chick-fil-A meetings with a bunch of Christians at the absence of non-believers? Or is there a both and? There's nothing wrong with that. But do you see both? Is there an engagement with Christians And is there an engagement with the unbelieving world around you? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He so associated with pagans and Pharisees in his day that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Not that he was, to be very clear, but he associated so closely with those people that that he was condemned by association by the religious elite of his day. I would love the religious elite of Peachtree City to say that about me, just so you know. I really would. Look at Jamie, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners. I would love for that to be on my tombstone. Just those three words, friend of sinners. That's a huge win for my life if that's what people say about me. And in fact, if you're friends with people who don't know and love Jesus, I would love to get invited to your party. I'm new in town. I haven't met those people yet. I'm trying to find them. But if you're friends with those people, whether they are religious lost or irreligious lost, I'd love to get invited to your party to hang out with those people. We're called to befriend people who don't profess to know and love Jesus. But Paul says, if someone bears the name of brother or sister in Christ, if someone professes to know and love and follow Jesus, but refuses to exhibit humility and live a life of repentance, well, that's a different story. And so in verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. It's seen six times in that particular book of the Bible, and it's synonymous with killing the person, putting them to death. Now, Paul's not saying off with his head. He's not the queen of hearts, right? That's not what's going on here. But if you look back at verses three through five, there is something more, I think, going on than just removal from the church. Let's look at those verses as we close out this morning, and you'll understand the meaning behind the title of this sermon. It says in verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so verses 2 and 7 and 13 talk about removing the unrepentant person from the church. Some theologians argue that delivering over to Satan is synonymous with simply removing someone from the church. But some believe, and I'm inclined to agree with them, that that there's more going on here. Look at verse 5 again. It says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. First of all, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, Paul uses the same language of uh, handing someone over to Satan, namely two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made a shipwreck of their faith. And there's no word about excommunication in that particular book of the Bible at all. Secondly, delivering a person over to Satan 
looking at verse 4, requires the power of the Lord Jesus. This is something going on in the spiritual realm that requires the power of Jesus Christ to be on the scene itself. So what in the world is going on in verse 5 when, when Paul says, hand this man over to Satan, deliver him over to Satan? I think, and several commentators would agree with this, that the answer is found in the book of Job. All right, try to track with where I'm going here. I pray to God that we never have to assemble for the purpose of what I'm about to unpack for us. If you go back to the book of Job, it's a great book of the Bible to read, by the way. Fascinating book on suffering and God's work in suffering to bring about holiness and intimacy with him. It's really incredible. If you go back to Job chapter 2, verse 6, if you look in the Greek translation of that particular book of the Bible, Remember, um, the apostles are reaching out to Greco-Roman subculture. The Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew. So there's a rewriting of the scriptures in Greek so that this Greco-Roman subculture will understand what's going on. And if you go back to the Greek version of the Old Testament and you look at Job chapter 2, verse 6, it says this. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, I deliver him, Job, to you but guard or spare his life. So what, what's going on up to this point? If you remember the story, Satan has approached God. There's a conversation going on, really weird to picture. And God says, has you, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He's blameless. He's upright. And, and, uh, and Satan says, uh, let's, let's do this thing, essentially. Let's get in the octagon, me and Job. And, um, and God says, you can have his possessions, but you can't have him. I'll deliver all of his possessions over to you, including his family members. And Satan uh, has a heyday with that and brings about great destruction on everything that he owns, killing all of his family in, in the midst of the, the wake of the craziness that ensues in Job's, Job's life. And Job says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of all that. Satan comes back to God and says, let's do this again. But this time, instead of handing over his possessions, why don't you hand over Job himself? And God says, okay. Okay, we'll do that, but with one limitation, you cannot take Job's life. The very next verse, Job chapter 2, verse 7 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. If you fast forward to the end of the book of Job, the last sentence that comes out of Job's mouth is this. Chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you, God. By the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happened in the book of Job is that Satan became a means for Job's sanctification. That's crazy. That Satan becomes a means of, of Job growing closer in intimacy with God. The same thing happened to the Apostle Paul himself. If you read um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, in order to keep me from exalting myself, arrogance, the same issue for the church in Corinth, he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of who? Satan. Jesus could take it away, but he doesn't. He sovereignly allows it, saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What Paul's saying in verse 5 of this morning's text is that God is so in control, he's so sovereign, that he can use Satan as an instrument to bring about repentance and holiness in his people. To be sure, most certainly it's a last resort when the one-on-one -on -one conversation does no good, when the community group uh, level pressing in on sin and unrepentance does no good, when the loving rebuke of the elders of the church 
does no good. But Paul's saying, rather than see a person lose his or her soul on the last day, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That somehow, and this is mind-blowing to me, somehow God has designed things in such a way that the assembled church, by the power of the Lord Jesus, can release an unrepentant so-called Christian into the hands of Satan to do whatever he will short of death. And if that's what it takes to save a person's soul, to bring him or her to repentance, it's an act of grace on the church's part to do that. That Jesus will do whatever it takes, you might say, to make us holy and happy in him. That, That you and I, we're the greatest enemies of our own joy, of our own holiness, of our own happiness in Christ. When we run from community, when we run on to the next church, when our sin becomes known and just do that church hopping thing, we become an, an enemy of our own joy, of our own growth, of seeing flags of dominion planted by King Jesus. If we're a humble, repentant people who commit ourselves to one another in community, we'll never get to the point of what Paul's driving at here. I don't think. We may, but it'd be much harder for us to get to the point of what Paul's addressing in this church. But... Should we ever find ourselves assembled in the the way that Paul's describing here? It's a reminder, at least, that God does not stop pursuing us, and he'll use the devil of hell to get us back if he has to. As we take communion this morning, if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, As we read ahead in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that uh, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by the greedy swindler Judas Iscariot himself, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. You're a Christian in the room as we prepare for communion this morning, I'd encourage you to sit with these questions. One, is there unrepentant sin in your life? I mean, are you like maybe several steps away from 1 Corinthians 5, but on a track toward that? That's your trajectory right now. Are there areas of your life that a pagan would define as morally intolerable? If a non-Christian looked at your life, would they see moral hypocrisy? Is your life one that honors or dishonors King Jesus before the watching world? Do you make the grievous sins of others an occasion for gossip, or do you mourn their sin as if it were your own? And lastly, very simply, are you a friend of sinners? Do you have a party to invite me to this morning? If you're not a Christian, take this time during communion to sit back and ponder the Passover story. Let's go back to that if you're not a Christian. God says to the Israelites, I want you to take a lamb without spot or blemish, And I want you to kill it and smear its blood on your your front door. And the purpose of doing so is so that that lamb might function as a substitute for you. That judgment's coming, no one's exempt, and it's either the blood of your firstborn or the blood of the Passover lamb. Remember, Paul connects the dots for us. He says that the true Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. That like the Israelites, judgment's coming on the land and no one is exempt, none of us. That, That sin has put a ransom on our heads, you might say that we deserve the death penalty, that either we pay for our sin or the unblemished, perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, pays that penalty for us. 
In the same way that God saw the, the, the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelite homes and passed over them, God sees the blood of Jesus spilled out for you and pass, uh, passes over you if you'll turn to him in faith and trust in his life, death, and resurrection. That Jesus lived the perfect life, the spotless life, the blemish-free life that you and I could never live. He died our death. He paid the penalty for our sin. He was punished in our place. He bled and died so that we could go free. If you're not a Christian, I would implore you this morning to turn to Jesus and be made free. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.